Welcome to our last panel discussion on the topic Reforming China's Economic Reform. As a reminder, the fire exits are located at the site and at the back of the theater. If you hear the alarm in case of an emergency, please evacuate immediately through your nearest exit and do not use the lift. This panel will be moderated by Professor Danny Kua, Professor of Economics and International Development at LSE. Dr. Cao Yuanzhen and Dr. Jin Keyu will also be sharing their views on China's economic reforms. I will now hand over to our moderator, Professor Kua. Please. Thank you very much, Mr. President. And welcome, everyone, to this panel on reforming China's economic reforms. Uh, my name is Danny Kua, and it's my great fortune to get to chair this last session of the day. Alongside me are two of the world's top experts on China's economy, Professor Tao, from, who from his vantage point as chief economist at Bank of China International, has been able to draw both direct practical as well as scholarly lessons from these immense changes that we have been discussing today. And Professor Ke Yujin, one of the stars of our already star-studded LSE economics department. Both of them will be sharing their views on what's happening with China's economy. I'm going to follow the model that Kerry Brown said a couple of hours ago, where I'm going to speak for maybe three minutes to just to set the stage for the discussion that's going to come next. The plan of action is that I will then hand over to Professor Chin, who will give us her views for 15, 20 minutes on China's economic reforms, followed by Professor Tao, after which we will have a discussion and a question and answer session that I hope will involve everybody here. Because I am now an old economist, I get to talk about how things used to be like. Some of the time, how things used to be like is not that different from how things are today. One of the ways in which that's true is doomsaying on China's economy. 35 years ago, I had econ economist colleagues who went on to win Nobel Prizes and all other kinds of awards, who constantly told me that China's economy was doomed to fail. It was too different from the things that we're used to, and if it does anything successful, it's only because it's got so many people. <laughs> 30 years after that, these dear friends of mine are still telling me the same thing. The last 30 years of frustration and confounding of expectations that China has delivered to them in terms of what the spectacular things it's been able to achieve has not done away with the pessimism on China overall. And the beginning of this year, the very first week, gave the critics even more fuel for their pessimism. Because if you cast your mind back to the beginning of this year. Put to one side how expectations have been confounded. Put to one side how China has 
engaged in the greatest poverty reduction program in all seven million years of human history. Put to one side how it used to have an average income less than 2% of the United States. Today it's got more dollar billionaires than every economy out there. Put all that to one side. What happened at the beginning of this year? Three things. And these three things keep coming back in popular commentary. The first of those is China's equity market. What's happening with the Shanghai stock market? What's happening with the Shenzhen stock market? People now remember this latest bout, a 40% reduction in the value of Shanghai and Shenzhen last summer, extreme volatility, policy that seemed to zig one day and zag the other day, constant turmoil. And then after a period of consultation following that, China's regulators putting in place a system of circuit breakers, which were meant to give pause to fluctuations in stock market, meant to calm markets down. But what happened with the circuit breaker system the beginning of this year? On the very first day, first trading day, the 4th of January, the circuit breakers kicked in very quickly. And by 1 p.m. in the afternoon, they had kicked in so much that the market had to be shut down. A mere three days after that, on Thursday, the 7th of January, circuit breakers kicked in and shut down the market within 29 minutes of their opening. For those who want to look for the disaster scenario just about to happen, this was grist for the mill. This was just something that was emerging as they had been predicting for the last 30 years. On top of that, word and statistics about what was happening with China's exchange rate and its foreign exchange reserves. China's exchange rate, these pessimists point out, have ch the ch China's currency has, has devalued 6% against the US dollar in the course of trying to maintain the value because obviously what was happening was the steep fall in market confidence on China's economy. In an attempt to keep this value, China had spent, so the story goes, 108 billion US dollars in its foreign exchange reserve to try and support that currency. And over the last year, has expanded perhaps half a trillion US dollars of its foreign exchange reserves in a combination of capital flight and exchange rate support. This was point number two for the disaster scenario. And this, in people's views, was simply something that came on the tail end of similar contortions last summer, where August, even as the People's Bank was trying to explain that it was simply trying to make the RMB more market-oriented, world markets panicked and thought that China had embarked on a program of current, a steep devaluation and currency war. The final nail, the third nail in this coffin after these last 30 years, is China's real economy. Its growth rate is now shock horror, only 6.9% over the last year. Never mind that this such a growth rate would be the admiration and envy of any other economy in the world. This is the lowest growth rate that China has experienced in the last quarter of a century. So the stage is one where the pessimists, after these last 30 years, might be scenting blood. This is payback time for constant frustration. On the other hand, the optimists will argue that there's a narrative that explains all of these fluctuations. That is the background that I go into this discussion with. 
I would like now to turn to the real experts who will tell us what's been happening. So if you would join me in obviously not welcoming Professor Jin, because she's here all the time, but in, <laughs> but in applauding her before she begins her presentation. Thank you, thank you. Um, great to see so many familiar faces and good to be here. Um, so China meltdown is all the rage and uh, shorting China uh, has once again taken center stage. Now, everyone is worried about China, but China is worried about Donald Trump. So, <laughs> just to put things into perspective, um, this is how we, how we see about Chinese economy um, in, in a similar scale. Now, let's, you know, just as Danny said, kind of shorting China has been a major theme. I, I'd go not back 35 years ago because I wasn't born, but I'd go back to 15 years ago where um, people were actually even more worried about China. Uh, the the non-performing loans of the banks and, you know, all of that called for a potential anticipation of a China implosion, which never happened. And the reason is very simple. Pushing through reforms, and at that time was a radical privatization reforms, um, led to very rapid growth rates. And with rapid growth rates, the debts got absorbed, that non-performing loans got kind of, you know, absorbed, digested, and the high asset prices were uh, justified. So this is how China, you know, China's cycle, growth cycles go. It's reform-driven. So the next question really for us today is whether um, the next round of reforms can be pushed through so that all the, mount the, the, the mounting problems, including debt, including stock market turbulence, including the unjustifiably high housing prices and stock market volatility, um, if there's actually good growth, these are no longer problems. Let's just put that um, first uh, at the outset. Now, I think I'll focus this time on kind of trying to debunk two big misconceptions about the Chinese economy and what the real challenges, I think, in my opinion, are uh, that China is facing. So when we think about the economic problems, uh, Danny listed them, you know, comprehensively. Um, the thing is, they're not really just economic anymore, in my opinion. They're really not at a reflection of just economic problems. They're political, and they're also social. What's stopping economic reforms from being pushed through are exactly the lack of political reforms. And what's uh, stopping political reforms from advancing is this growing fear of social instability, which um, I want to bring up as an important point to think about. Um, so, because, you know, there's this notion that China's in transition. It, I find that really interesting, that concept. You know, we see low growth, what's going on? China's in transition. What does the Chinese government call it? A new normal. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite right, to be honest. I'm not sure that maybe it's just kind of a psychological, it's a terminology for psychological comfort. It's not our problem, it's just a new normal. It's, I, I don't see it that way because the economic problems are very clear. To some degree, and I might have some differing opinions here, the state is kind of choking the private sector. The state is also choking the household. Now, I'm a big fan of the Chinese state economy. The state capitalism, state economy directed has pushed China towards, you know, lifted hundreds of millions of people out of, out of poverty in a very, very relative short uh, period of time. Um, but the problem is that the low-hanging fruits of the, you know, focusing just on the economics is now gone. Now to push through the next wave of growth, 
which is about efficiency, which is about innovation, relies on what? It relies on good institutions. Now, that's the hard part. It's not just economics anymore. It's also politics. To give you a simple example, um, the household share, okay, the household part of the economy is a very important part of the economy in everywhere except in China. Now, the household share of income fell from 70% of GDP to 60% of GDP in a matter of 15 years. To put it into perspective, in other advanced economies, the household share of income, or GDP, is about 80% and usually stays constant. So when GDP grows, 80% of that goes to households. In China, it's been declining, and that's because of an imbalance between the government, the corporate sector, and the household. So that is an obvious problem to resolve. You want to talk about consumption? You want to talk about consumption growth, consumption boost? It's nothing like some kind of small policies will be helpful. You have to unleash the dynamism of the household sector. And I'll come back to how that can be done. Um, secondly, the state is also choking a bit the private sector, the private firms. Uh, the state has access to cheap capital, cheap land, preferential tax treatments, etc. Uh, making the economic conditions, the economic environment, really difficult for the private sectors and private firms. And as we'll see, as I'll talk about these reforms that we have experienced in the past, the private sector has been a very uh, primary, very, very important contributor to uh, productivity growth and overall GDP growth in China's you know, macroeconomic situation in the last 10 years. But their conditions are getting more and more difficult because it's really hard to get capital. They're very credit constrained. So as an example, and this is by no means um, unrepresentative or exceptional, a lot of the Chinese core businesses have turned away from focusing on their core competency, the core business, to investing in the stock market because their lives are getting very difficult and they need to return a certain amount of return to capital uh, to, uh, you know, to investors, etc. So their inherent productivity or their inherent competence, uh, which was you know, kind of subsidized for a long period of time because they wanted to, the government wanted to have uh, kind of productive um, exporting firms, are now, their competency are eroding, competitiveness is eroding because of higher labor costs, because of all these different difficulties in financing. So I do worry. When, when we talk about the present challenges in the Chinese economy, I am concerned. I don't think there will be a China meltdown. I don't think there will be an economic implosion, but there are real challenges. So I want to kind of list some of those out and also want to debunk some of the myths about what are what I believe not to be real challenges in the Chinese economy. So for me, the economic problem is really simple. It's not that we're in a transition. We're not, you know, just going into consumption because relying on consumption to generate growth, I do not think is China's next, um, it's kind of the solution to China's problem. We're really talking about sustained productivity growth based on efficiency, based on productivity gains, based on innovation, based on competition, based on fairness. These things have nothing to do with consumption per se. This is what's going to propel China to go forward for many decades to come, but that relies on good institutions. The difficulty is not that we're in transition. The difficulty is that the hard part is about to begin, and it's really hard to reform institutions. So I think what China needs is an ideological shift. We first had a major ideological shift uh, more than 30 years ago, 1978. That's the mark of the first year of reforms uh, carried out by our great leader, Deng Xiaoping. Right? But there was an economic ideological shift back then because the ideological shift was everything is about economics and everything is about development. So whoever guaranteed growth was championed, protected, 
and condoned even, okay, to some extent. Um, but right now, what we need is another ideological shift. Now, I emphasize ideological shift because I do think that this is kind of a barrier, a barrier to further reform. Now, there are a lot of other difficulties, which I'll, 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 I'll map out in terms of reforms, but first and foremost, there has to be an ideological shift in believing that the next stage of growth relies on institutions. Okay? So China, people are worried that China's growth era is over. Now, if we look at China's growth experience since 1978, and if we plot out a graph of China's GDP per capita growth, what we will observe is that it hasn't always been a rosy picture. It hasn't always been, you know, an above 10 percent. It's been cyclical. It's been going up, it's going down, going up, going down, at least four big cycles. So China's growth cycles are actually driven by reforms. 1978 was the mark of the first reforms, in particular agricultural reforms, in particular uh, establishing special economic zones. But by the late 1980s, growth hit a low point because the benefits of this first wave of reforms started to wear out, and also we had the Tiananmen event, so Tiananmen Square event, 1989, the GDP growth rate was as low as 2%, right? So what did the government do? Launch the second set of big reforms, which is privatization. Now, privatization was a very radical and important reforms. To give you an example, the, sh the share of employment that's, um, that is absorbed by the state, the state sector, in non-primary non uh, sectors was around 52%. It fell to only 13% in a matter of a decade. Okay? So a massive transition of labor out of the state sector. What was the consequences of the mid-1990s privatization reforms? Well, the private sector productivity growth rate was extremely high. The productivity of the private firms were extremely high. But even more so, the state-owned enterprises productivity growth rate was actually even higher. Once they reduced in size, once they you know, kicked out 400 million you know, jobs, they shrunk substantially. Their growth rate or their total pro productivity growth rate was at a 5.5% on average. It was extremely high for state-owned sectors. And the private sector's growth, uh, productivity growth, contributed to a third of China's GDP per capita growth. So let's not forget how important productivity growth has been. Okay, not capital accumulation. Well, that was important, but I want to make a distinction here, and I'll be a little bit more specific a little later on. But productivity growth has been essential and core part of China's GDP uh, growth experience, and that has a lot to do not so much with um, you know, what we traditionally think as productivity based on innovation and, um, you know, kind of the American-style productivity growth. But China-style productivity growth back then was different. It was unique. It was about mis uh, uh, reducing the misallocation of resources. What does that mean? Moving labor from very low productivity sectors and firms to really high productivity sectors and firms. So just reallocating existing resources from low productivity to high productivity areas contributed substantially to China's productivity growth. This is what we call structural transformation. Now that is quite unique to China because China started out being a very distorted economy. It started out from being a centrally planned economy. And these reforms were about removing or correcting some of the major distortions. Now are we left with no more distortions? 
Absolutely not. China is still distortion-filled, which means that the other flip side of it is that there's still many important reforms to be done. There's still plenty of growth potential left in the economy. That's the other misconception that I want to uh, point out. Right? And then by the late 1990s, the benefits of the privatization reforms also started to wear off. So around 1999, GDP per capita growth one year was only about 6.9%. Okay? It wasn't, you know, after, decade, you know, after almost a decade of double-digit growth, it was actually quite low. That was also when the China, you know, shorting China story was also all the rage. Uh, then what happened? There was another reform, joining the WTO. 2001 joined the WTO, economic growth went back to double digits. So I highly encourage for those who don't know this or who haven't done this, go to the, you know, I don't know, World Development Indicators, download the GDP per capita growth rate in China, and you see these four waves, four cycles. It hasn't always been a straight line of very fast growth, right? So what I want to emphasize here is that China's policy tool, a very important policy tool to stimulate growth, is really about reforms. It's very different from a lot of other emerging markets, a lot of other advanced economies that rely a lot on monetary policy, fiscal policy, expansionary policies in the standard way. And this is because of where China came from, being a, dis a distortion um, kind of written uh, economy. But we need a new round of reforms, right? Everyone knows that. But it's also very important, not just because there are problems in China's economy, but because the reform can generate positive growth that can, again, solve some of our present problems, right? But what's the difficulty about reforms today? Again, it's not just an economic problem anymore. I think to fundamentally push through the next round of reforms, there has to be some major changes, fundamental changes in the political structure. Because there's so many layers of bureaucracy, so much vested interests that block key reforms from uh, pushing through. Today, the winners, there are winners and losers. The stakes are much higher than the first round of reforms. Vested interests will come out and block the reforms because they don't want to be eliminated. Right? Um, to give you an example of also the conflict of interest and also the misalignment of interests that is stopping China's reform from from carrying through is simply the following example. Now, maybe you know, I, you know we have uh, people who would disagree, but uh, who is in charge? You know, one of the most important reforms is state-owned enterprise reforms, breaking down state-owned monopolies. In my opinion, because we have already seen in the first uh, privatization uh, reforms, you know, unleashing the private sector really contributed a lot to China's uh, dynamism, economic dynamism, because the private sector can flourish. We need to do more of that. Right? But what's, so who's in charge of breaking down state-owned enterprises? An entity called SAZAC. Now, they are in charge of SOEs in general. Their power derives on the power of SOEs. So you're, asked them, you're asking them to, you know, to basically eliminate their own existence. Right? There's no conflict of interest right there, is there? Mm. Um, also, another example is uh, the second set of reforms. Now, I, t I tend to like to distinguish this two set of reforms as one is opening up reforms, capital account liberalization, exchange rate, you know, convertibility, et cetera, building international financial centers, and domestic reforms, which is about correcting the fundamental uh, distortions in the Chinese economy. I tend to think that the latter is more important for domestic growth, and the former is more about setting the next stage 
uh, for China's, you know, capital account surplus, current account surplus, and to build this international uh, center, which would allow China to transition from a cheap labor model to a cheap capital model. These are slightly two different uh, reforms. Even Deng Xiaoping emphasized uh, 改革开放, right? 改革 reforms, 开放 is opening up. So I tend to want to, you know, kind of make a distinction between the two. Right? Um, but who's in charge of capital account liberalization? Well, an entity called SAFE. But SAFE's, you know, SAFE's power also derives from being able to tell you how much you can take out of China and tell you how much you can bring into China. Now you're going to eliminate their role in being able to control capital uh, flows. Now that might not be precise for every entity, but what I want to say is that there are some major conflicts of interest. And a lot of these vested interests would come out there and give very, very compelling economic reasons why some of the key reforms cannot be done or is too dangerous or need to be delayed. A lot of people want to evade responsibility and push back reforms, push back the reform schedule. Especially in today's anti-corruption environment, people don't want to be conspicuous anymore, right? So many of the problems for economic reforms is the fact that the political layers, the different kind of layers of bureaucracy and the vested interests and the conflicts of interest are stopping these reforms from happening. Is there will? Absolutely. Is there desire? Is there the acknowledgement that these reforms are important? Absolutely. I always say they're there, but the political structure unfortunately needs to uh, fundamentally change. Now the third element is social instability. There is you know, there are many, many dimensions of social conflicts now mounting. And some are turning into what potentially could be a social movement. You know, the social conflict between urban and rural, um, across different sectors, um, you know, from between the state and the private, uh, the breakdown of meritocracy in general, social decay, all of these things are under the consideration of the government. The government does feel or fear social instability because change is important, but change brings about uh, potential social instability. I do believe that even, for instance, the matter of employment, you can break down a state-owned enterprise monopoly, but what if it employs 40,000 you know, workers, right? These kind of concerns are, are, are kind of um, really also important. So I think the social co potential social conflicts is also a barrier for some of the major political reforms and economic reforms from um, advancing. Uh, so in the last two minutes, I need to be a little bit optimistic about China, you know. I mean, and unfortunately, I spoke too much, so I only have two minutes to be optimistic, whereas really planned for a, a third of it to be at least very optimistic because everyone is, you know, talking down on China. Um, I think that's just a mistake. You know, the growth opportunities are really clear and there. First of all, there's still a large misallocation of resources from capital, labor, to talent, Simple correction of the misallocation of resources can bring huge efficiency and productivity gains. I think one of the academic calculations, um, you know, in terms of orders of magnitude of growth, we're talking about GDP doubling if China's capital efficiency can reach that, the level of the U.S., which is, again, admittedly a very far-off uh, far objective. But still, this is the room for growth. There's also urbanization. It's only halfway done. But the problem with urbanization is that in order to urbanize, you need to create jobs, right? You need to move people from the rural to urban areas. But currently, the current focus on this overly industrial capacity, um, manufacturing goods-oriented economic model is not conducive to creating employment. Uh, the sector that creates the most jobs is really services, okay? So services... Uh, 
kind of reducing the barriers of entry to service sectors will create many jobs, and then there will be a vicious circle between services, employment, urbanization, consumption, etc. Then there's an unintended consequence of the one-child policy, which is many of you guys. Um, the intention was to reduce the number of children, which they definitely uh, succeed in doing, but the consequence was a super-educated generation. Look at all of you guys here, right? <laughs> um, so 25% of Chinese households, sorry, no, Chinese households on average, urban areas, spend 25% of their annual spending on educating one child, okay? And what do we have? We have now a two-children policy. So um, <laughs> imagine how expensive one of you is and then multiply that by two. <laughs> So I think, I think, I think, unintentionally, that would be one of the most uh, effective consumption policies, even though they weren't originally intended to be uh, policies to boost uh, consumption. But even more important is really this notion of human capital. Okay? Human capital is very, very high in China, accelerated to a great extent by the one-child policy. Right? But still, there's a gap between the China's, China's human capital level and America's human capital level. So even based on this notion of convergence, do we have a great deal of room for growth? The list can actually go on. I just want to, um, you know, uh, kind of correct the biggest misconception, which is China's growth era is over. No, the list can go on, and there are very important uh, uh, sources of growth. So the key question is, can we move to the second stage of, um, of pushing from, uh, through the institutions? Now, we might think that, you know, all of what's said is true, and it's difficult to push through these reforms, but one potential indicator is that if economic conditions actually worsen, this is when the reforms will actually have to be pushed through. So often in the West, we tend to think good times breed crises. And in China, at least in the past experience, crises breed better times in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ke Yi. The cold hard look at some of the problems and then well-founded optimism at the end. I would like to turn now to the second panelist. If I could invite you to join me in welcoming an old friend to London and to the forum, Professor Cao. Thank you, everyone. It's an honor for me to be here to stand on this platform, you know, since LSE is one of my premier school. <clears throat> you know, as Professor Jing has mentioned, he recalled the, the whole process of the reform. I personally participated in this process ever since. Um, but my picture is a little bit different from uh, Dr. Jin's. Uh, I should say, you know, China now is conducting the comprehensive reform. What is comprehensive? Comprehensive is comprehensive. <laughs> you know, according to the reform plan introduced by the uh, party's uh, third plan of the 18th Congress, this program related, you know, the items over 360. It will be accomplished within the five years in the year 2020. So, too comprehensive. Here, um, I just uh, 
you know, since the time is quite short, I just mentioned several very important things. I will give you a picture about what is the reform. Three things. Why they conduct reform now comprehensively. Number two, what, it, what is the comprehensive means? Number third, what are you going to do this year for the, uh, to start the reform? So, <clears throat> uh, so the first question, why do you introduce reform now comprehensively? You know, everyone knows now China's uh, macroeconomic performance is going down. It is similar like the, you know, some Asian countries after a periodical high growth rate that since the structure changing, the performance going down and say goodbye for double-digit growth. China is in a similar experience like the Japan in the, after the 70s and South Korea after the 90s. We said goodbye for the double-digit and the, the growth rate is falling down to Last year, 6.9%, which is the lowest uh, last 25 years. So someone said, you know, because of the structure changing, China said goodbye for the double-digit growth rate, and it is similar like Japan and South Korea. Yes, maybe. But if you careful study, if you compare these two countries with China, you can see it is different. You know, at that time, Japan and South Korea, their urbanization, as Dr. Jin has mentioned, is over 70. But till now, China, 54. That means urbanization rate is quite small, quite low. There's still room or potential for growth. Why the growth is going down? Only one answer, that is, the system is wrong. Cannot support the growth. The potential is not mobilized. So that's why they need reform. Urbanization is a comprehensive thing. It's not related only with the economic field, but also as politically, socially, cultural, and uh, environmental issues. So that's why they introduced the new round reform, they said five in one. Political Economically, cultural, uh, social, and environment, and the plus two. One is the defense force. The other is the party's con construction. So we have seven items related with China. They try to set up a new system, and an aim compared with the reform uh, 38 years ago in 1978. At that time, as Dr. Jing has mentioned, we said, now only one focus, that is economic development. But now we said, the focus is a little bit changed. We have to build a modern nation to set up, you know, good, good governors. We have to have a good capability for governors, and we have, a good, we have to have a good governance system. That is the aim. So that's why they introduced five in one plus two reform and uh, over 360 items related with each other and will be accomplished you know, within the next five years. So it is so comprehensive.
Number two, for the economic field, what is the comprehensive means? What doctrines, what principles they follow? You know, from my personal understanding, there are four principles which are very important. Number four, uh, number four, uh, number one, they said, if there is a conflict between the market and the government, who is the deciding force? Market. This is the first first time they said market is the decisive force in to determine the economic movement activities. And I think this is very important. That is now experienced after 35 years reform. For the first time, they announced like this. Number two, if you want to move to the market economy, since market is unified, it's a system. It cannot be separated one by one, item by item. So they have to, <coughs> you know, do an overall reform. Since the market is linked with each other, financial reform, uh, budget reform, SOE reform, as well as land reform, and as well as social security reform. So all this reform linked with each other, we said we have a master plan. We have to design how to start uh, the reform. Which leg should uh, go first and which leg should um, follow behind? Number third, they said, if a modern economy, it is an open economy, it is open to the world. China's economic system is a not a China's economic system. It is a system for the world. China's market is the world market. They open the market. So, you know, the aim for next reform, we said, to set up open um, economic system. <clears throat> Number four, since market economy is a uh, um, what we call the legal economy. You know, um, judicial reform are very important. So they introduce this kind of reform. And it starts, for instance, you can see uh, circuit uh, court is set up. And uh, intellectual property rights court is set up. And maybe they plan to set up financial court in Shanghai. This is the doctrine. This is the principle for the reform. And what they start this year. You know, four items I should mention here. Number one, SOS reform. Number two, fiscal system reform. Number third, financial system reform. And number four, social security system reform. For SOEs, maybe it is different from um, what outside understand. You know, we said, you know, now the reform is not SOE, but the state assets management system. We change SOEs management, we change the reform 
from SOE's management into the state assets management. From manage a company, manage a, a factory into a managed capital. Uh, last year, they introduced this program. They said they divided the SOEs into two parts. One is commercial, the other is non-commercial. For the commercial, it should be driven by profit. For the non-commercial, it should be driven by cost. So one is profit maximize, the other is cost minimize. In the between, we try to, you know, for the monopoly, natural monopoly uh, companies, they try to, you know, merge these two. For instance, you can see Sunopec, they sell all the gas stations to, to the society. And they withdraw to the monopoly, natural monopoly sectors. <clears throat> this is a new reform ideas. Why we adopted this? Just now, <clears throat> as Dr. Jin has mentioned, China's demography is changing. China is into the aged society. So, so social security is a heavy burden for this state, for this country. But uh, after we careful study, we said this is not a so serious problem since we have the assets, SOEs. SOEs is now a pension fund. So the reform is like that. Ever since um, this century, they try to give some shares to the social security fund. I mean, the SU shares. And they said, you know, in the year 2020, the profit of the SU is 30% of them should be donated to the uh, social security fund, to the um, fiscal system, to the budget. That is the idea of ISU's reform. So a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, different from the previous idea. Once, you know, in the 90s, in the early 80s, we said to let SOE to be efficiency, but now we said to manage the capital. The state should be like, you know, capitalist to manage the capital, not to manage the company. That is the difference. And this year, you will see. Number two, fiscal system reform. China is a large country with uh, um, 1.3 billion people. So it is a very Chinese uh, question, you know, um, about five, uh, 5,000 years. What, how to deal with the relationship between the local and the central, local and the central. As we know, in the last 35 years, why China witnessed the high growth rate? Because the local government played as uh, investors to invest heavily in the uh, economy. So uh, China's economy is investor-driven uh, economy. But after that, you can see the debt issue came out. Local government debt become a serious issue now. Local government debt is not a um, financial issue, it is a um, fiscal issue. We have to rectify to see whose responsibility to what. You know, once local government is GDP driven, 
But now they want to change the local government from GDP driven into social um, welfare, social responsibility. So we said change the government functions from construction government into a service government, and the local government may be the major body to accomplish this task. And they need rectify or reform the expenditure structures as well as the revenue structures. And this year, they will introduce this kind of reform, majorly to deal with the relationship between the local and the central. Number three, financial sectors, as Dr. Jing has mentioned. You know, we have the clear aim of the financial sectors. Three items, three aims. Number one, liberalization of the interest rate. Number two, free the exchange rate. And number three, let renminbi fully convertible. And we have adopted experiment. You can see Shanghai, Shanghai Free Economic Zone experiment. You know, Shanghai, um, although China has many free economic zones, but Shanghai is very special. Shanghai is the financial center of China. It is the center of the renminbi. That's why Shanghai Free Economic Zones experiment is related to the financial system reform. All experiment, you know, towards the capital account openly and the renminbi convertibility. If you accomplish this aim, you have to liberalize the interest rate. So last year, all the interest rates are liberalized. And after that, since uh, uh, interest rate is the rate of the exchange rate, you have to free the exchange rate. And we can see, just now, as Professor um, has mentioned, renminbi exchange rate now fluctuates. But here I should, I should say something about that. To now understanding, now, uh, renminbi is not devalued, but because U.S. dollars is appreciated very much. <clears throat> Since the time is running, so I cannot explain clearly. But, uh, you know, uh, last uh, issue, social security uh, network reform. <clears throat> As Dr. Jing has mentioned, <clears throat> you know, since China is going to the Asia society, social security network has become a very important issue for this society. It is related to stability of the society. So they need to rebuild or reform the system. You can see the last two years, they are, have, um, there are many measures has been uh, conducted. Number one, they merged double track social security, social security network into one. All of the public services, servants, no matter you are carters or teachers or doctors in the public uh, service sectors, you have to donate your pension, your social securities to the social security fund, equalize other people 
uh, in the society, for instance, the workers in the factories. So they merge these two things into one. Number two, they said, you know, we will, this social sector network will cover all, every member of this society, no matter who they are. So they enlarge the social sector network to the countryside. And now they still have the, um, some difficulties, but they try to accomplish. That is, China now still have 17 million disadvantaged people, poor people. They said within five years, they will eliminate this and what they can do by social security network. The government will, um, will expand more to these sectors. So this kind of four reforms are introduced in this year, and we can see the result. At last, I should say. I personally participated ever since. Once I worked in the State Commission for Economic Assistance Reform for 14 years. But this commission is, it is eliminated in the year 1998. So I lost, uh, lost my job and have to work in the Bank of China to be a chief economist. But from my personal experience, I should say, what is the reform? As Dr. Jin has correctly mentioned out, it is the driven force for China's economic growth. It's a driven force for China's economic, uh, sustainable economic growth. So, um, for my generation, this year I'm 62 years old, you know, retired from the Bank of China. But for my generation, we know this is the Chinese experiences. In Chinese world, we said, I don't know how to translate it into English. You know. If you have some worry, only reform. Because reform can eliminate your worry, and I think that is the hope of China. That is the, uh, you know, China's sustainable growth now become a world issue. Only the reform can make China's prosperity, and that is the good news for the whole world. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Cao, for your very hands-on and very practical and very granular look at the history of these reforms and how they have been successful. I would like now to open the discussion to the, to the floor. I propose, in the interest of time, taking three or four questions for the panel to discuss on economic reforms or China's economy generally. So if we may begin, please wait for the microphone to get to you and then ask your question. So the gentleman over here first. Um, uh, yeah, uh, thank, thank you very much for the speech. Um, I just want to ask uh, Professor Tao about the private debt in China. According to the uh, official statistics, um, there are about, like, the government debt is about 40% of the GDP. For it's very it's very low in compared to many other countries. Like for Japan, they have 200%. But the Chinese private debt 
is about two times of the GDP. According to the Financial Times, it's about um, I don't know. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I don't know how to say in English. It's quite a large number. So, <laughs> yeah, it's almost two times of the GDP in China. So, what's your concern? What's your opinion about the private debt? And what's the, uh, what's the bank's perspective? And what's the bank's solution to, to the crisis? Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, okay. The, anybody from the middle? I want to spread it, spread it around. Okay, nobody from the middle yet, but you think about a question. And then, uh, okay. And then the gentleman over here. Hi, I've got two questions. Um, so it's a little pessimistic, but um, the question is this. Is China moving towards a 1991 Japan, i.e. market crash, and afterwards long-term deflation? Because um, there are certain parallels, such as an overvalued market with a slowing economy, along with the fact that there's also an aging population. So, in other words, um, fundamental issues working against long-term recovery. And another question, which is, should China protect its, cur its currency, especially in light of sorrows and people targeting the currency? The idea is that should the country actually um, show up currency to actually protect it? Okay, thank you very much. One more question before I turn to the panel. Um, I would like, okay, the woman in the back up there, towards the middle. And I'll come back to you. Hi, thank you to the panelists. Um, I just have two questions, um, mainly for Professor Jin. My apologies for any mispronunciations. Um, first of all, how do you believe the government should tackle the opposition to um, future reforms that you mentioned? Um, are you to reassure the public and to appease political opposition? And secondly, should the reforms promote another cycle or what would you recommend to, to promote steady, um, sustainable growth rather than just an increase and then we see a decrease again? Okay, thank you very much. Okay, I'd like now to turn to the panel. Perhaps I can begin with Professor Tao on private debt. Okay. <coughs> yes, this is a good question. You know, what is China? China is a development country. Development country needs capital, so they have no capital. That is, I think, the address to teach you, you know, for the uh, economic development. Uh, how to reach the capital? If they do not have the capital themselves, they borrow. So that is the common um, phenomenon for the developing countries, the debt issue. That is the private debt. Uh, four years ago, uh, we carefully studied this issue. I have a book about the you know, balance sheet of the China's uh, national balance sheet. Uh, we checked the four balance uh, sheets, uh, state, uh, financial institutions, enterprises, and then the household. I should say uh, two risks. Number one, what is your said, private debt, especially for the enterprises, no matter SOEs or in private enterprises. The debt ratio is quite high. 
So, um, you know, now China is over capacity. They will reduce the capacity. And we, the worry is that whether uh, during the re- reducing the cap- capacity, uh, production uh, capacity, there is a deleverage and it makes things worse. So that's the uh, issue. Now they try their best to, you know, to maintain the leverage, but they uh, cut, the, um, cut down the overcapacities. This is their scenario. <clears throat> um, another way, another thing, you know, another risk is the local government debt, just I mentioned. You know. So this is uh, you know, what we call uh, financial risk. So you can see after the, you know, in the reform program, they said two aims. One is growth rate. Uh, for the macroeconomic controls, they said two things. Number one, full employment. Number two, to avoid systematic or regional financial risks. That is one of the uh, macroeconomic control um, management aim, which introduced last year, and this year still meeting this, uh, this aim. Thank you very much. Now, Kuyu, I obviously want you to answer the question on currency, among other things, but perhaps you could first pick up the question on reforms, how we overcome the political opposition, how we make it sustainable, not just cyclical. Well, I mean, the, the, the problem is, is that it is uh, challenging, right? I, I think one of the key problems is that it's not this conflict of interest where the vested interest is not perfectly perceptible or clear to the, say, the top, top, you know, officials in the party. I mean, the Chinese government consists of the party, of the different state-owned enterprises and the, and the ministries, and often there's a lot of miscommunication among yeah. them. So is that conflict of interest perfectly, you know, acknowledged and perceived by the party? I have my doubts about that. You know, the communication from one layer has to go down to the other layer, trickling down to all kinds. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of layers that the information has to be trickled down. So I think that's even more, uh, that's part of the difficulty. I mean, sweeping aside the vested interest has always been difficult, but, you know, Deng Xiaoping was able to manage it uh, with, um, he did, you know, back then it was not vested interest based on economic interest, but they were uh, political diehards or political ideologues. So it has been done before, and you know, I, I believe that somehow when conditions push you know, China towards reform, as, uh, as Dr. Tao was ma- mentioning, that it would just naturally um, happen anyways. But it is a difficult problem. For sustainable economic growth, again, I want to emphasize this whole notion that China is going to boost the consumption. That's not, that's not necessarily a sustainable growth model. You know, we, we see in the data that uh, the, the countries that grow the fastest are the ones with the highest savings rate. And, um, you know, so for me, it's about in- innovations, about efficiency, it's about productivity growth, um, it's about fair competition. All of that, again, relies on institutions, good yeah. institutions. Right? So that's, that's the second and more difficult phase where, in which China has to enter. Excellent. Now, I want the two of you to, to speak to the last set of issues, but perhaps I could begin with Ke Yu on whether China should be even more setting aside foreign exchange reserves to, as he said, defend its <laughs> currency. Well, I think um, the part, of the part of the difficulty is to, again, this is an ideological, pretend, potentially just a mental shift, which is to deal with volatility. 
natural volatility, natural business cycles. Now, when people say Chinese government manipulate the, the GDP numbers, I don't think they're actually right about that. Um, since 2009, the macro numbers have been pretty good, but you tend to see that the government smooths out the business cycles, you know, kind of just smooth things out because they're really afraid of volatility. But this is just the fact of life when you're a market economy. Same thing when you open up a capital markets, exchange rate volatility, all kinds of capital flows in and out. It's just part of life. And in fact, what we're observing today in the international arena, because countries are more globally integrated over time, all these countries are subject to what's so-called the global cycle. Massive inflows and capital, you know, inflows and retrenchments, even when you don't want it. When you don't want it, capital comes in, you have a huge, you know, leverage, huge credit bubble, huge asset price bubble, and then it goes out. This is, this is something that's happening to all the countries that are open. Now, that I think fundamentally will become a problem because we're going to see more volatility and potential crises just because of the fact that the global arena has changed. This is where it calls for macroprudential policies, somewhat of a capital controls. This is all very much kind of, um, you know, work in progress. So, but coming back to the fact that the Chinese government or the Chinese mentality has to accept that volatility is just part of life. Volatility is not necessarily a bad thing because you have to trade off the volatility with all the benefits. And there's a lot of benefits for building an international financial center for China. We have to move away again from this cheap labor model to having, and coming back and tying back to the Japan problem, I think this is where it's going to contrast with Japan's experience. Japan fundamentally in the end was a closed economy. And so it's about accepting the volatility, but it's also about do you have a strong enough financial sector and a banking sector to absorb the shocks? That, to me, is the fundamental question. So I do not believe that controlling even more and more is the answer. Excellent. Thank you. Professor Tao, can I ask you to speak to either currency or Japan or... Mm-hmm. <laughs> For Japan, just now, uh, I have said, you know, uh, China is not Japan since the urbanization is quite uh, low. Mm. We still have, you know, the room for, uh, for urbanization. Uh, we uh, calculated every year maybe the urbanization rate will um, enhance one to 1.5 percent. If uh, reached the Japanese uh, urbanization rate uh, 70 percent, there are still 15 years. That is sustainable growth. Number two, for the renminbi exchange rate, I want to mention three things. You know, for a currency, its value depends on productivity. This is the, you know, the law or effective, effective of the semison balasa effect. You know. If the productivity is enhanced, then the currency will be you know, appreciated. Uh, in the last 35 years, China's, as Dr. Jing has mentioned, you know, uh, allocated resources from low productivity area into a industry high productive area. That's why renminbi appreciated. Now, of course, structure changing, uh, service sector become a major sector, so the productivity compared with before is quite, uh, you know, is declining. However, still enhanced, still going, the, going up. We calculated maybe in the next uh, 15 years, 1.5 to 2% productivity uh, will be enhanced. 
That's why renminbi has no room for long-term devalue. Number two, you know, last year, uh, renminbi joined SDR. For SDR, that means renminbi become an international currency. It should have its, its valuation. Before, you know, renminbi do not have value. They just packed with the U.S. dollars. So U.S. dollars going up, that renminbi appreciated. U.S. dollars going down, renminbi devalued. Now, they changed the echo from U.S. dollar into a basket, into a basket. You can uh, see last uh, December, PBOC announced this basket. So now you can see the phenomenon. Now renminbi uh, depreciated against the U.S. dollar, but appreciation you know, against other currencies. So only one uh, explanation, U.S. dollar is too much appreciated. So every money, every currency against the U.S. dollar depreciated, among which renminbi, you know, depreciated less than other currencies. Number third, as Dr. Jing has mentioned, you know, Fluctuation is the nature of the market. Uh, but you know, if too much fluctuation, overshooting, it means panic. And I think you know, uh, risk amongst renminbi, you know, a little bit of panic. So some people are worried about that. So that makes the government have to do something to stabilize the market. Um, in this way, we can see maybe the better choice is not to close down the capital account, but to more openly to the outside. Now, our suggestion is to, to you know, uh, to uh, you know, to develop the fi uh, fi uh, fixed market, for instance, to issue a lot of government bonds. To, uh, to provide renminbi assets to everyone. If the return is good, so maybe people won't hold it, then uh, renminbi exchange rate will be maintained. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, if we do this quickly, we can try and get in as many questions as possible. So first, Yishuan over here. No, sorry, woman behind. Hi, thanks very much for the speech. Uh, I have two short questions. So the first one is, um, it's kind of consensus view that this gradual muddling through uh, reform would work for China. And what's in your view the disruptive risk? So what would be the unexpected risk that could break this scenario? Uh, and the second question for me is, what are the technical solutions for China's private and local debt problems in a low, in a uh, environment where the growth slowed down. Um, and everybody talks China is different in absorbing the risk. So why, what, what exactly do they mean that China is different in absorbing this risk? Thank okay. you. Thank you very much. Now, there was a woman in back, the woman in the gray jumper, gray sweater. Could you stand up, please, the woman in gray, so that she can see you. Please stand up, yeah. 
Uh, thank you very much for your inspiring sharing. And my question is about decentralization and devolution issue in China, because there's some research showing that there's a trade-off between decentralization and economic growth in developing countries because of the limited capacity and low efficiency of the regional institutions. So uh, in your personal uh, opinion, do you think decentralization or devolution would be a solution to solve the problems in China, or would it be helpful to boost the efficiency? And if uh, consider the tension between the central and the regional government, do you think, uh, to what extent do you think it should be implemented? Should it be a fiscal one, or should it be a political power one? Thank you. Thank you. Very detailed question. Um, okay, so the woman in another gray jumper over here. You could stand up so that we can see you. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm a student from in, uh, in international political economy. Uh, I have a question for Dr. Jing. Uh, I found it very interesting that you, when you mentioned about productivity growth, uh, it said that China is different from countries such as the United States, which relies on innovation. Uh, you emphasize, instead, you emphasize about reducing the misallocation of resources. Uh, in the 2013 IMF country report, its suggestion for China is that to is to transform as current extensive growth model, which relies on factor accumulation and uh, the relocation of labor from countryside to factories to an intensive growth model, which relies on T TFP growth. But TFP, uh, a big uh, subsection of TIP is technological progress. So I want you to comment more on the comparative, what do you think is the comparative, why uh, the uh, correcting distortion is comparatively more important for China uh, compared to technological innovation. Okay. Thank you Thank very you much. very much. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to have to come back, but first I'd like uh, Koyu to speak to this question about the kind of productivity growth, you know, TFP in the traditional sense, or misallocation. Right. So, um, it, it's just that in the t past 20, 30 years, most of the productivity growth in China has not been based on innovation, but based on this reducing misallocation of resources. Again, from agriculture to manufacturing, and also from state to private. That explains the chunk of it. Now, going forward, there's two sources, which is that you know, the misallocation of labor was what was the historical past. Now we're looking at the reduction in the misallocation of capital. And then the second is what you mentioned, which is really fundamental productivity growth. Now, for a country that's deeply distorted like China, quantitatively, the misallocation of existing, existing resources can more quickly you know, be realized. If you're talking about marginal growth based on productivity because we invented something or that, that's going to be comparatively smaller. But I agree, for a sustainable long-term trend, it has to go back to that, and that goes back to our institution's uh, point. Thank you very much. Now, there's a follow-up question, Professor Cao, on private debt. Previously, you already spoke to the private debt question, but Pishuan has just asked you about technical solutions you might have in mind. So if I could get you to respond to that first. What technical solutions for the private debt problem? <laughs> we're all ready to take notes because we're going to go out and implement this. You know, it is normal. You know, for the NPL, the, you know, the bank has some normal measures to deal with. Uh, in China, we don't think, you know, the private debt is a serious issue. Since China adopted a very uh, tight provision doctrine, you know, According to the Basel III 
the provision is 1% of the total assets, but China is at 2.5 of the total assets. Mm -hmm. So that is the highest provision in the world. So you can see if they use this weapon, maybe they can at least deal some private debt. Mm. But mm. you know, uh, what are worried about the local government debt? For the local government debt, it's not so seriously, but it is seriously. The reason, not so serious. Just now, well, just now he mentioned. Mm. You know, in terms of GDP, China's uh, government debt is the lowest in the world. According to the Euro um, criteria, you know, 60% uh, of the total GDP now, maybe in the world, only the Chinese government can reach to this, mm -hmm. uh, can fulfill this uh, criteria. Mm -hmm. The other countries, you know, surpass. Uh, number two, China's local government debt. Half of them are what we call the local government platform, financial platform. Mm -hmm. This platform <coughs> is not a direct government debt, but this debt they use in for investment in infrastructures. They build the railways, irrigation, and other items. So compared <coughs> with the debt of Greece, you can see the Greece, you know, the debt they eat, they mm. drink, but nothing go back. <laughs> But you know, for the infrastructures, of course, the some, maybe the value um, is declining, and uh, it is devalued. But anyhow, there was something left. So that's why we said it's not so serious. But it is serious, two things. Number one, term mismatch. Term mismatch. Mm -hmm. You know, the local government, according to the statistics, you can see 48% uh, occurred after the financial crisis mm. in the year 2008. Mm. Now, they have to pay back. But they invest in the railways. The railway is still finished. So they have no nothing to go back. That is the mismatch. Number two, the local government majorly in the gross level, uh, gross fruit level, in the county level. You know, China has two, uh, nearly 3,000 counties According to the statistics, only 54 counties have no debt. Mm. Mm. Although the debt is quite small, but you know, numerous uh, obligators. Mm. So that is so serious. How to deal with that? Can I just add one thing? If, um, yeah, please. By the way, household debt in China is one of the lowest in the world. People often talk about you know corporate debt, but they don't re mention household debt. Household debt is, is the it's, it's the lowest in the world. The benefit of the household is the, it's the strongest in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I wonder. I wonder also if it has a little to do with the imperfection of our financial markets, mm. which is that we have a huge amount of household saving. Most of that go into bank deposits, and without you know, a very complete financial system, the intermediate, you know, this household saving gets transformed somehow into, into debt. And this so is also... To give up the capital market. That, that's, that's the answer to the <laughs> so implementation we, you know, problem. We're trying our best to change the in direct financial structure into a direct financial structures. Excellent. Now, the person who's got the time is staring daggers at me, and I need to close this. 
But if I, I would like to close in the following way. There are a number of questions outstanding. I would like to fold them into a survey that I'm going to take on my panelists here. So, and you are only allowed to say two things. You can't oh, give yeah, me an yeah, explanation. Yeah, yeah. I just, I you know, no, okay, here, here are the two things. Here are the two things. So there was a question there about decentralization, all the other stuff. I'm going to fold that into what do you consider the two largest unexpected unknown disruptive risks out there that we should be thinking about, but that for which we don't have very much thought yet. You don't have to explain, just tell me two things. So can I begin with Kuyu? <laughs> <laughs> okay, can I start with one? So, social yeah, instability. One. Social instability, excellent. One is good, that's a huge, huge one. Professor Tao, you can name just one if you like. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, <laughs> to eliminate uh, overcapacity is a task, but if uh, during this process there is a simultaneous deleverage, it's a disaster. Mm. Okay, excellent. I, I, I know that a number of you still have your hands up and you are looking at me intently. I, should I get to your question? I would love to be able to do that, but I am afraid I'm going to have to call this session to a close. If you could join me in thanking the two panelists. <laughs> <laughs>